bitches bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Erica. And Erica, guess what? What is that? We are joined by our new co-host. Oh, <laughs> yes. You seem Finally. So, you seem so surprised given that she's sitting right next to you. I know. <laughs> I wanted to, you know, I wanted to keep up the pretense. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, say hi. Hey. It's Amy. Yay. Joining you guys in the studio for the first time. Woo! Very exciting. Woo. It's uh, it's a full house in here. It is. The studio is always swelteringly hot, so having an extra body is like uh, I'm practically naked. Feel like I'm but it is down, like but minus eighteen outside, so I I'm okay with a hot studio. Yes, yes. So we ha- took a week off, and uh, I went to go visit my parents in Vancouver for my dad's birthday. So how was that? Uh, it was seventy two hours. In Vancouver, and like twelve hours of flying. Wow! So oh my God. do the math. Oof. Exhausting. Best daughter ever. I hope you at least got a mug with that <laughs> testament on it. <laughs> no, I did have to make a toast. You gave a speech. Yeah. And that's so sweet. Was um, it like? Was it? Okay. So was it? Um, I tried to be heartfelt. Warm and heartfelt I'm, and, you know, squishy. I tried. Because <laughs> that's not I'm you. not a very squishy person. <laughs> so it ended up being a little bit more funny. That's great. People love funny speeches. Uh, but, like, I'm not funny either. That's So. That's, that's even better. Everyone was like, oh, how long did it take you to write this? I was like, well, I wrote it while you all were here. So 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> People don't like that, I'll tell you. <laughs> I mean, I slaved over it all week. <laughs> it was it was in my subconscious. Oh. It just needed... It, which is actually true. See? So. See? Yeah. That's the whole thing with goal setting, isn't it? Yeah. Is that, like, when you set goals, like, and you write them out, or you say them, or you mm-hmm. recite them, then subconsciously, your mind orients itself to actually, like, making progress and totally. thinking about those goals and that's what you've been doing in 2018 i have visualizing affirmations all that good stuff no okay so (laughs) this is boyfriend's fault oh fuck yeah he's like should i be taking notes he's like he's like yeah so at the beginning of the year he's like so what are your goals for 2018 you know because he um you know he wants to see my business grow and as do i so I was like, yeah, I need to that do bastard. that. I know. <laughs> I, I was like, yeah, I need to do that. And he's like, actually, I have a program. And I'm like, seriously? A program? Yeah. Yeah. It's this program and this whole goal setting program. So I'm not really good at writing them out every day. But, you know, I do kind of cool. write them out once a week. Great. Yeah. yeah. So and you know what? It kind of like it's actually been pretty. I would say, <laughs> it's been pretty good. I think whatever it is, making the space to reflect is like really valuable and yes. that manifests in any number of ways. Yes. I would say like a daily goal is a little much. Like I feel like when you get down to it, day, daily accomplishments are just more like indicators to reach your weekly goal or your monthly goal. For sure. Yeah. But it's They're the tasks. same. 
it's not, not goals. It's not it's not tasks to goals. It's more like the actual goal. Yeah. yeah. You you write it out every day, kind of. Thing. Also, have or you sa- ten. heard me sound more bureaucratic than what I just said? <laughs> <laughs> These are indicators. <laughs> Performance for <the> management. <laughs> For your proposed outcome. Oh my gosh, yes. Cool. Dude, it's a Saturday. <laughs> no. I'm no. so tired. No. I I had That's I don't know, allowed. like, thank God it's February. I don't know. Actually, February is starting off pretty all right, pretty good. We're on the third day. I know. Yeah, what's happened? I mean, We're only halfway now. through the third day. Yo, it's like I don't know. It's something about <laughs> this year is special. Although January was a bit of a slog, it was. Oh God! That meme going around is like, oh, oh January finished January is the longest like fifty-seven days or year of yeah. my life. Yeah, yeah. the yeah, yeah. the longest year of my yeah. And somebody's like, is it February yet? And yes, it is February. So happy Black History Month! Woo woo! That's yeah. It's a big reason to be excited. Well, I get a to, lot of good stuff. I people invite me to say shit now. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah! Yeah. It's and like, I'm like, I like be this is awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, like, I'm on a few panels mm-hmm. coming up, and um, I like being on panels because I can just talk. <laughs> I like to talk. No way. What? I know. Erica, I did I know. not know this about you. I know. Like, <gasps> this is the best part. Like, I'm like, oh, people invite me to hear my opinion. Fuck yeah. See, there was a point in time where I was the radical. Yeah. And now... Now that we're living in a Trump world, I'm the I'm the voice of reason. Amy, how's your week been? Uh, fine, stressful, exhausting. I don't know. So I same as everyone else. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. I think I need a Twitter vacation. Yeah, or vacation from Twitter. Fair, but then Erica had one yesterday and missed like everything. I know. I, did. I feel like I can't sleep. Like every time there's like a rumor of something, like I have to be vigilant. We need to like be ready for when the trolls come out in the middle of the night and someone else resigns. And like I. I'm very anxious. I don't, I don't, uh, it's not great. I just, <laughs> I, I honestly was off Twitter most of yesterday and then this morning. Yeah. And cause I had meetings, like that's what happened. Yeah. And then I had a date with my boyfriend and so, yeah, yeah. you know, that was Cute. it. There's no Twitter there. So See, well, it's because now, you're, you're dating the wrong type of person. <laughs> just date someone who lives on Twitter, too, and then yeah, you can yeah. just both sit there on your phones. How romantic. Actually, he's, he, he knows how to use Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes he trolls me. Okay. Oh, <laughs> and so, anyway, I was like, da 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 Next thing you know, Uma Thurman breaks. And I'm just like, why, why do I feel like I've lost, like, two days of news? I feel, I feel empty right now. <laughs> I really do. It's also because a day on Twitter is like five days of any other. It's five days of emotional labor. Yeah, exactly. It is. Oh my gosh, it is emotional labor. Um, so for those listeners who aren't in Canada, last week, as we've been calling for, the Me Too movement finally hit Canada. Uh, particularly in the Ontario provincial politics sphere. So since then, like, there's been a a number of men in politics who have stepped down from their roles, resigned, retired, what have you. And, well, 
We'd just like to take some time to shout them out. I say we make a slideshow, all of the Oscars. <laughs> In memorial. In memorial. <laughs> oh, no, you know what? That's that how would everyone, be awesome. That's how everyone is treating this. Like, it is so sad that these people lost their political... First of all, they're all still sitting MPs, almost all of them, or sitting in some capacity. They just lost some of their leadership duties, as they should. Yes. And I don't know why... I mean, the reaction has been just so over the top with the idea that we need to preserve their political careers at all costs. And so, you know what, RIP, good riddance, whatever. Yeah, so... Uh, so long, farewell. These men, Rick Dykstra, former Conservative Member of Parliament, Patrick Brown, the former Ontario Progressive Conservative leader, Jamie Bailey, the Nova Scotia... Uh, former Nova Scotia Progressive Conservative leader, Kent Hare, a Liberal, liberal Minister and Member of Parliament... Federally, Aaron Weir, the opposition critic for public services and procurement from the New Democratic Party, and Colin Kenny, a senator. Uh huh. Cool. So. Cool. Shall we just state the obvious and <laughs> say that <laughs> they're all, they're mostly progressive conservative? I have to say that I don't think that one particular party has a monopoly on sexual misconduct, harassment, assault, whatever. I don't think that it's more prevalent in one party than another, Mm -hmm. particularly. I do think, though, that the conservatives just seem to attract this element. Right. And they seem to do so because their policies and their verbiage and their structure is so devoid of um, distinct voices that are not white and male. Mm. And so because they sound like an old boys club, they always sound like an old boys club. I mean, they're notable exceptions, right? Yeah. But because their rhetoric sounds like it's basically from the 1950s and 60s, they have a brand problem. Mm. And they look like they would court, and they probably do, these types of men. That's mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Potentially. I mean, I feel my, my critique to that is any kind of, I mean, any man is capable of committing assault and rape. And certainly the NDP allegations, which aren't fully clear yet, but there are allegations of NDP candidates who have, you know, so in Saskatchewan, there's the NDP candidate, um, Adam Duke, who from the last election had uh, raped someone who was a young NDP uh, woman, uh, part of the executive of the young NDP. He was affiliated with Aaron Weir in some way, had to resign from a staff position. Those things happen in all sorts of spaces. I don't think mm-hmm. it takes a particular type of personality or politics to not, to not understand consent or also to act out in these ways. And I've also been kind of really heartened by the conservative women, and I kind of feel really weird to be the person to like speak for them. I'm not praising them. I'm not saying they're all feminists per se, but it's interesting because behind a lot each of these stories is a conservative woman. So Jenny Byrne, in the case of Rick Dykstra, who we've seen from email leaks, was actually saying to the party, "These are the complaints. These are the allegations." And then all of the men in power saying. 
no, 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 these are just allegations. We don't need to pursue that further. There aren't charges yet or the charges have been dropped and so we're not pursuing this. And same with Lisa McLeod who raised the issue of Patrick Brown to the campaign like heads of the, his leadership campaign. This guy is running to be premier of Ontario against the most progressive premier we've probably ever had who's like an out lesbian feminist like you know proudly so lisa mcleod comes forward and says um actually i've heard some shitty stories about patrick brown everyone brushes it off and yeah. says that's not really a thing or we shouldn't be worried about it or go ask him about it we could we shouldn't be worried about it but this is the thing i'm not saying that at all what i'm saying is is that you know when you court like communications managers who are from the rebel and yeah fair enough you you know and you basically treat women's rights as though it's you know secondary and of no consequence and nice to have i'm saying that that attracts a certain element but but even in truth however what i what i am saying too is that as as i said before i don't think it's particular i think the nuance of what I'm saying is that is that how it looks is that it looks worse when a conservative kind of family values family type values candidate. type yeah. candidate um, you know it looks like they look like an old boys club already right. no I totally yeah I totally agree my issue yeah. though is that we're not we're sort of letting the NDP and liberals kind of get away with using the right language when before I'm this not move, no 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 but yeah. I, I'm I guess I'm speaking beyond your comment yeah. the royal yeah. we say the royal we are <laughs> sort of ignoring the fact like for example the you know staffer who complained about Senator Kenny wrote to like there was an investigation no one wanted to come forward in the investigation she wrote to Trudeau Trudeau ignored her email until the story broke in the media well, my, and then refused to meet well, with Well, my her. my question is, how did Kent um, Air? Kent Air, yeah. Air, how did he get on? You're telling me that nobody knew, they knew. anything about this? For sure Yet he got on to cabinet? Absolutely. Like, and yeah. caucus? Yeah. You're, like, yeah. that's such bullshit. Totally. I can't even. Totally. Now, on the other hand, here's what I'm saying, too, is that um, what's bad for the liberals is that they... They have called them, they've branded themselves feminists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on the other hand, I don't know, I haven't heard much from the liberal women. And that concerns me. Like cabinet ministers, I really haven't, I've heard more from Michelle Rempel, who has been actually preparing policy in response to this from Rona Ambrose. Like you said, those conservative women, they have really taken up the the cause and they really are about action mm-hmm. and it's because the liberal women are neutered let's be honest there you go and that is the point i'm coming to yeah. I, think the, I think the they help, yeah. have they fall in line or they're out of ca- cabinet like they let the party tell them what to do tell them what their opinions are which are quote-unquote feminist opinions but they're not allowed their own agency, so which a, is yeah. c- extremely contradictory to the yeah. whole point of being a feminist government. Yeah. I think that hypocrisy is really what's st- yeah. singing for me right now, yeah. for sure. Yeah. How do you think about Jagmeet Singh um, and his response to accusations of his... I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think 
certainly the third party investigation process is what's standard in these types of situations. I like the language that he said around a look. We don't ha they don't have someone who came forward specifically having experienced anything from Aaron Weir. They heard from a uh, from a member of caucus who says I can't be in the same room with this guy based on what I've heard. Um, and he's specifically saying we want a survivor-led process, so I'm setting the tone so people feel comfortable to come forward. And the problem with these investigations is that no one wants to come forward as a witness, and they're not compelled to, right? It's not a court of law. Yeah. They don't have to participate. If you don't want to participate in an investigation, or you go sit there and you say, I'm sorry, I don't know, because you, you're worried about your own job, it's important for the leader to come forward and make sure that folks know that if they do participate in the investigation, they're not going to bear any repercussions from that. Yeah, I think he used the right language and is taking the right approach to the situation but the situation itself is completely fucked up because it's a secondhand account and so they're like oh well we're going to open up this investigation but the investigation could just be a moot point if no one comes forward and then what well that that's fine sometimes that happens though yeah. that's not uncommon in workplaces sure the, the reality is the goal for the party is to protect the overall work unit yeah and you have, and if, and I mean, we don't know what else was said. I assume in the 36 hours between he got that email and he had the press conference, conversations were had about what Christine Moore, who's the member who came forward, knew or didn't know or what the nature of the allegations yeah. were. But they weren't her allegations. No, but, but she, she says she heard from other female, she heard from female staff and she thinks it's serious enough that he, that Aaron Weir shouldn't be campaigning to be um, caucus chair or whatever. Right. Oh, is. okay. So, so I feel like, mm -hmm. you know, that there, there is, there is enough there. And if, you know, the goal for any employer, and that's sort of what this is, right. in protecting staff is to, to weigh, to weigh those concerns. Yeah. If the investigation says it's nothing, it's not, it's, it's inconclusive. And, and that's, that's fine. Right. We have to be ready to accept that outcome. Cool. Um, so just before we move on, um, I do want to give a shout out to everyone who, voted in our co-host process we really appreciate your engagement it was super awesome thank you for supporting uh your selected candidate um and through that process we did gain a few new um patrons mm -hmm. worthy of uh, a shout out so just a shout out to nadine stephanie Corey, and Catherine. thank you for your patronage and if anyone else is interested in becoming a patron getting our newsletter and a bunch of other things uh, patreon.com slash bad and bitchy. So uh, let's get into it. This week in feminism. First up, uh, this past week, the Correctional Service of Canada announced that it would be now housing inmates based on their gender identity instead of birth gender. Correctional staff must also address transgender inmates by their preferred name and pronoun, and offenders will be allowed to shop for both men's or women's items from the Correctional Service's approved catalog regardless of their anatomy or the gender on their identification documents. Further, the, char the changes also emphasize the privacy and confidentiality of an inmate's gender identity, which will be shared only if relevant and only with those directly involved in a prisoner's care. These changes come after the federal government added a gender identity and expression uh, clause to the list of prohibited grounds for discrimination in the Canadian Human Rights Act last June. Of the changes, uh, Jennifer Metcalf, the executive director of Prisons Legal Service, said, quote, We are overjoyed that the Correctional Service of Canada is making so many positive changes that recognize the human rights of trans people in the correctional system. 
These changes will remove the safety, will improve the safety and dignity of transgender federal offenders in Canada, affecting every aspect of their daily lives. This is really cool. Fuck yeah. Like, I saw a Law and Order episode like this once. Really? Yeah, it was SVU. And, <laughs> sure <it was. laughs> like, um, okay, so there was this transgendered woman who, um, I guess somebody found out that she was transgendered and threatened her and came came charging towards her and she killed him and then she got sent to prison but people were like is it a male pri-? you know so male prison female prison so it was mm-hmm. it was very this is years and years and years ago wow yeah listen law and order shaped my my life i swear <laughs> um all of them um so it's it's just so interesting. Like, that was the first time I had been introduced to that issue. And I think it was, like, something like 10 years ago or seven years ago. Maybe seven. So, I mean, I think this is a good thing. And I remember feeling like, oh, that's fucked up. I remember that was my conclusion because they sent her to a male prison. I'm oh. like, yeah, exactly. That was my... Yeah, that's that's... That was fucked up. And I was just like... And that shaped my whole view. Totally. Like, seriously. It's, it was Law & Order SVU. It's just unsafe. Because that person is going to be the target of harassment and abuse and violence in prison. It, yeah, it's unsafe. Um, I assume that they required, based on this, because they are saying, you know, you can choose whichever uniform from each catalog and whatever, that they were expecting gender conformity as well, which is... Mm-hmm. Um, demeaning and degrading, right? To require um, someone to, you know, ignore the gender expression they worked probably so hard to to get to. Um, My one concern is wanting to know how much is actually being allocated to resources for correctional services officers, um, knowing, like, knowing what all of this means and understanding the dynamics and how they'll play out. Um, because it's not, it's one thing to put people like just in, like just in general, um, there, you know, there will always be questions about gender expression and whatever else and not outing the personal information. Like I hope they, they take that part of it seriously. Yeah. It it did say that there is a deficiency in the training and education of the, um, correctional officers, which I, I assume that they're going to remedy. Um, and I will say that, that those types of jobs in, in, jails and prisons probably attract a more conservative punitive type of person who may not respect the may not gender respond. fluidity yeah um and so yeah there may be some that's going to be a mm-hmm. big culture change mm-hmm. uh which p- will probably take a while but i think it is a good way to get people to a- particularly people who share those views like they're like oh well they a lot of them don't know trans people mm-hmm. um so they probably have preconceived notions of how they act mm-hmm. or how they mm-hmm. um carry themselves so like just kind of getting them to face trans people mm-hmm. may, might help change their views on the situation yeah potentially and i mean it's also the same for inmates and folks who bunk and that they're also i mean you, without exposing that they're with someone who is trans and doesn't want that identity to be known you know if you're not if you're not passing right if you're trans but you're not passing as your um yeah chosen yeah i don't yeah i don't always say chosen selected uh 
I feel like I'm behind on this language, but either yeah. way, I can, you know, Prefer- I, like there are there are repercussions to, to that as well. Like there's so much education that needs to, to sure. happen. Um, so, I mean, safety for those inmates in particular, trans and like gender nonconforming inmates is uh, probably really um, behind where it needs to be. And I'm sure that like it's not a criticism. No. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, putting mm-hmm. trans people people in the prison where they that meets their gender identity mm-hmm. will you know provide them with a, a much more stable and i mean better environment than they would be if they were in the opposite prison For sure. um which would hopefully sure. reduce recidivism rates yeah yeah that's interesting yeah because they'll be feel have those feelings of acceptance or be mm-hmm. more accepted yeah. than like just getting angry yeah. and feeling like they've been uh, abused by the system. Mm-hmm. In sure. prison, acceptance. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they're, they're like, like accepted by the system. Like when you're, when my you're guess in, is yeah, but like, if you're when not, you're there for a while, yeah, but if you're not going to be getting like abused all the time, assuming, assuming yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. 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 you're not you, harboring as much anger. Like you're obviously angry. You're in the system. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, to, you're not compounding on that in the same way. I think there are other ways the system abuses. And oh, I'm absolutely. Sure, and I'm sure that, and considering that those haven't been looked at, if you think of solitary confinement, for example, mm-hmm. that's a good example. And I feel like like there needs to be some prison reform oh, in general. Absolutely. And, you know, had anybody had any courage whatsoever this would be a package in a suite of reforms. Mm-hmm. But no, we're getting this like drip drop process. Well, this yeah. is a specific response to the added language in the code, uh, the human rights code. But I mean, absolutely. Like, aside from solitary confinement, there's also like double and tri- or rather triple, quadruple bunking. Yeah. There's the weekend and like there's overcrowding yeah. is, is yeah. at an all time high. And then yeah. there are also all the programs that ever used to exist in prison that were geared towards meaningful rehabilitation have all been stripped so there are other than the some work programs there's very very little that's offered to inmates no library like used to be libraries used to be like clubs and other types of programming none of that exists anymore exactly Um, so i yeah yeah i'm with you 100 percent. yeah i i don't know anyway that's my little (laughs) (laughs) all right let's move on what so, um, right now, in 2018, the city of Ottawa is experiencing a surge in gun violence, with 13 shootings having taken place in January, which is compared to five years ago when the annual total was 32. So, one month into 2018, and when we've already reached about 20, 40% of that number. Uh, this week, the president of the Ottawa Police Association, which is the police union, Matt Scoff said, quote, you are seeing a correlation between our lack of interacting with the public and an increase, a sharp, dramatic increase in the number of shootings. The chief of police also said, quote, there is, a, an anic- there is anecdotal information leaking, linking the low number of police and public interactions with a potential increase in street violence. So for some background... On January 1st, 2017, a ban on the act of carding or police arbitrarily stopping people on the streets to check their IDs came into effect in Ontario. And between 2011 and 2014, Ottawa police collected information on more than 45,000 people through street checks. 
from March to December 2017, the Ottawa police stopped seven people, um, which is why the Matt Scoff is saying that gun violence is or violence, street violence is so rampant. Um, but really, the truth is carding doesn't really work that well, um, at least in cordi- according to leading to arrests. Um, valuable intelli- intelligence gathered under the carding process doesn't seem to be well accounted for. Further, anything gained of the street through the street checks is very likely to offset the loss of public trust it causes, mm-hmm. particularly amongst people of color who are generally targeted disproportionately through these through street checks. Erica's got a lot of feelings. <laughs> I do. She's pursing her lips. She's rolling her eyes, <sighs> sighing dramatically. <laughs> um, this is this is a case of somebody just talking shit at this point because he offers no evidence no plausible contextual link um anecdotal or not there's no data to support this no at the end of the day carding i'm not going to get into the legalities of it except that to me it seems like um a violation of the charter Mm -hmm. but um at the end of the day, if the police have to rely on only one tactic to prevent crime or to catch criminals, then they're fucked up anyway. Because to me, like, you, you're telling me that carding was your only hustle? Yeah. Like, come on. Why do you have investigators? Exactly. How about this? How about you go through, yes, the painstaking and slow process of actually building trust with the community. Mm-hmm. I used to go to compact meetings, which is um, community outreach, whatever, with the police. And the, the, the type of assumptions that they make in terms of which neighborhoods and who does what is not supported by anything. It's just that they have, they're predisposed to think people of color are up to no good. Mm -hmm. And so they card them disproportionately and it, and they take their information without charge. Mm -hmm. You know, all the people who talk about due process with sexual assault, I didn't hear them talk about carding. It's like saying that they have better success when they get information from warrantless searches like, they might as well just say, yeah, but you know what? When we break into people's home and get gather information without a warrant, we get so much closer to solving crimes. It's like, yeah, but you're still not allowed to do that. <laughs> like, I mean... What do they do with this database they have of, like, 45,000 names of people they've stopped? Like, how many people on that list, like, actually led to an arrest yeah. over a longer yeah. period of time? And their language of police interaction is... We should challenge that. What they're what they're talking, they're accounting. They're they're almost making it sound like they're doing street policing, and they're just you know walking through the neighborhood, saying hi, bye, checking in on people. No, they're not. Which is not actually what it is. What they're doing is stopping racialized people and demanding papers, which is pretty disgusting and reminds me of like some of the most darkest period of human history. Is really yeah. what that sounds like. Um, to gather information, that's not police interaction. It's not even police work. Yeah, like, it's lazy. There's, it's fucking it's, lazy. It's fucking lazy. 
See what I told. See, like a couple of episodes ago when I talked about lazy white guys. Yeah. This is exactly what I'm talking about. They are lazy. And they're lazy because they don't want to build connections with the community. They don't want to build relationships with the community because they don't, they're all in their feelings and they don't want to be wrong about anything. That's also like a touchy feely thing. And police are very masculine and it's a very like masculine job and like why why would we build relationships why would we take time Mm -hmm. that's wasting time and taking away from our real job which is catching the bad guys let me add though i I think it totally what you're saying erica um we're seeing it now as well with the um gay village slew of serial killer murders by yeah. Bruce MacArthur, where in the Toronto. police in Toronto, which sorry, so, which the police completely denied were happening, exactly. misled the public. Um, there and you know, again, it's they ignored a vulnerable community. They refused to see links. They refused to warn people. They refused to meaningfully engage or or yet they want to be in your pride parade. Yeah. But and they Bitch, hit no. touche, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. like that's the only thing. Yeah. And do you think that? With Carding, they would have stopped Bruce MacArthur? No, they would never have thought twice about Bruce MacArthur. MacArthur okay. Who everybody in every article, oh, he was the most normal. He was just a right, re- he was regular as fuck was literally a headline about <laughs> so him. So I will time. tell you, like, I looked at the breakdown, and if, for this conversation, the Ottawa police would counter with the seven people they stopped in 2017 or between March and December. Like, well, three of those white, three of those seven were white people. Yeah, that's because you knew so we were looking. Have, so <laughs> we would have found him. Fuck off. Well, they d- they didn't find Bruce MacArthur until he killed a six. Now is the cat like it, it's yeah. ridiculous. And and to your to Erica's earlier point, they, there was a huge fundamental misunderstanding about what's happening in marginalized communities. They assume that people, so in the LGBTQ context, in missing and um, murdered Indigenous women, they assume that they are want to be want to disappear, that they ran away from home, and they don't pursue them as actively as they do white people, who they assume do want to be at home, and they did genuinely go missing. Like so, when it comes to some of the most heinous crimes that are actually happening, they and it, involving vulnerable communities, then suddenly it's not their job to look after them. So why can the police? Uh, th- who is this guy? The police. He's not Matt Scott. Yeah, he's, he's the, the union head for the yeah. police association. But the police chief also echoes his comments as well. So it's so it's why can they? So okay. So the, uh, the they, Ottawa citizen called the police chief and was like, "Oh, do you have? Um, you say anecdotal evidence. Like, can you? Do you have any like things you can show us?" And they're like, "We're not talking about this anymore." So no, they don't have anything aside so, of their own personal so, opinion. So in other words, they can just spew their personal opinion. And just spread bullshit like that, and nobody challenges them on it. Yeah, is that it? Apparently, is that is that why is it that the police have no checks and balances anymore? Oh, they do. They have their own internal mm, uh, process because the city of Ottawa. <laughs> I tried to say that with a straight lets face. Let them run right? rampant and do whatever the fuck they want. Okay, I'm just saying. You that get more when fucking. They start, when you get they start more killing women, white kids. You get more women. You get more people we'll of color on that city council. Well, that's the other story. Ottawa City Council is very, very... Male? White? Homogenous? <laughs> and, and their concerns are not those of what the police are looking into. Their concerns are development yeah. and infrastructure and, and where business. the pot shops yeah. are going to be and if the business associations feel comfortable with that. Like, that's the nonsense that they're concerned with. And after, I mean, there's so many factors. Like, we don't even know what this rash of violence is connected to, and there's a lot to assess there. Is it yeah. poverty? Is it, like, certain so other kinds of social dislocation? What are the commonalities? 
and are there social programs that we can provide in particular communities where this is happening yeah. after school like what i don't even know what kind of violence we're talking about but they're generalizing to say all violence is on the rise and it's because we're not doing carding well like that doesn't tell me anything about yeah you know other types yeah. of approaches that aren't even policing like the answer to violence isn't always policing either right like yep um so we're moving on to a slightly less <laughs> gruesome topic so the grammys were a couple weeks ago now and were a complete mess um only two women accepted awards during the actual telecast alessia cara from canada and rihanna whose grammy was uh for her duet or appearance on loyalty from kendrick lamar's album and of course there was a backlash um with the recording academy president Neil Portnow addressing criticism for his lack of females on receiving awards and performances, saying that women need to, quote, step up if they want equal representation. But uh, as much as that was shitty and awful, we're not talking about that specific issue. What we're talking about is that Lord was nominated for Album of the Year. She was the only woman in the category, and she was not permitted to perform at the show. But uh, we also had Bono for, like, the millionth time. And it was just, like, every Grammys is, like, the Bono show. Um, so <laughs> in response to uh, the comments made by Neil Portnow, uh, Lord took out an ad in the biggest uh, newspaper in her home country of New Zealand and thanked readers for, quote, believing in female musicians. And this is just one of the many examples from this year's Grammys that show how out of touch they are with, well, everything. The Grammys, the Grammys, the Grammys. They should just—they should just start bowing out. I don't even they know why they just need to have someone else in charge. No, they need to like take down the entire—the the entire structure is like rot, rotted from the core. I mean, they look like your old uncle who complains about the increasing <laughs> number of brown people who move into his neighborhood. And he's the exact person who would refer to black music as urban contemporary. I don't it, even know what that means. The fact that big name celebrities choose to opt out at the Grammys is also telling because yes, more as. like Drake didn't show and even didn't, fucking more, Taylor Swift didn't show more life came out this year and maybe he felt snubbed but Drake didn't show Taylor hadn't like Taylor didn't I mean show. Taylor's like her album came out for next year's Grammy oh, right. consideration yeah, that's, right. that's right but still you would want you should show if it's the big night like you should show face what about um what's her name um Selena Gomez I don't, she there? I, I don't, don't remember her being there. So. I feel like I would have heard if she were there. I would have seen it on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she was I, there. I think either. you're right. Like, it's becoming uh, just, irrelevant. But Justin Bieber, I don't even think, was there. And no, he wasn't. And uh, that song, Despacito. Like, oh, yeah, they performed, they performed but Bieber Despacito. wasn't on stage. Yeah, and, yeah, Justin Bieber and he wasn't did there. That's true. You're yeah. right. Bieber That's wasn't true. There. Wow. Well, so I mean, go. it's yeah, it's becoming obsolete. But the the reality of uh, the you know the president of the academy coming forward and making statements like this really just sets such a negative tone and kind of reminds you of what's going on behind the scenes in, in the music industry. I to, like that to disparage he said this. I love a lot that. of women. I fucking love that he said this. What? Do tell. I do. I need more information because, like, we always suspected. Now we have proof. You know I what I getcha. mean? Yeah. 
I just like you're awesome, Neil. Thank you. I mean, it is it because is, we yeah. thought we're it's like a rallying cry for sure. There's like yeah, and then and then he he can galvanize an industry. It's awesome. It's awesome because at the end of the day, these things don't change just because we want them to. These things change because we rally together and actually fight for change. Mm-hmm. Nobody's gonna give you power. I always say this. Nobody's just gonna give you power. They're not gonna like say. You're a nice person. You're right. It's the right thing to do. Power's taken. And at the end of the day, dudes like Neil Pot Puss Piss. Port now. Whatever. But yeah, Pot I'm Puss good. is good too. <laughs> you know, I, it just came out. Um, <laughs> he, I, I feel as though he has, he is exactly the reason why the Grammys are becoming more and more irrelevant. And I know they tried because they tried to show it live. I think this may have been the first year they actually live streamed it or allowed it to be live streamed beyond oh, CB- CBS. You like you could find it. I remember posting that and I was going to watch the Grammys. I'm like, do I really want to watch the Grammys? No, because I watched the red carpet on Twitter. Yeah, that's it. I don't yeah. I don't really care. And then if there are any if anybody is talking about certain speeches or whatever, mm-hmm. I'll just wait for Twitter to... Uh, somebody yeah, will upload will a video. Upload so yeah. why do I have to watch the Grammys? Yeah. I don't understand. We don't need the Grammys. The Grammys needs us. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, now... Fair, but, yeah. but artists do need some kind of recognition. If they're doing out there doing that kind of work, it sets a, it sets a tone. But you're right. I don't think the Grammys are the vehicle for it. They My, just seem yeah. so... They seem so yesteryear when, you know, when the authority was within this structure. Mm-hmm. And now people just don't give a shit about the Grammys. Yeah. And I think music is just a far more fractured industry where people are listening yeah. to a genre and they're to, to lump everyone into a best album or whatever. It's like comparing apples and oranges. And there are specialized music awards that do recognition in subgenres, which is really, I think, where people are more interested or concerned. I think people, I think you're right. Music is fractured. The way we listen to music is fractured. Uh, Spotify, I think, is, is going public soon. Yep. And mm-hmm. Spotify has basically ruptured the industry. It really has. It's become, it's become the Netflix of music, right? Yep. So, and we all know how Netflix... Um, basically revolutionized TV and not movies to the same extent. Interesting things are happening. Mudbound and Mary J. Blige is nominated for an Oscar for a Netflix fucking performance. That's pretty baller. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, I mean, I think, (laughs) I think the music industry is just dying the slow death. I mean, how many people, if you look at, how many albums are released now it seems like a lot of it is just singles and like you don't get the same sort of of i guess what i want to say structured process i don't know of I consumption have... or production of music i guess the best example of why the grammys suck is the fact that lemonade got no recognition well, and yeah. that's a that's a huge album and conceptual project which should have been like the story last year and got no recognition at the Grammys. Yeah, I think, and there there are great albums that are coming out. I don't, I just don't think that 
the way we listen to music is album oriented or that we are I guess prepared to celebrate the work that goes into creating these kind of broader projects well on the other hand it's just a bunch of you know old Neil Putt now or whatever his name is um, <laughs> what do you what do you expect him to yeah. take from Lemonade right like, honestly do you honestly think this dude barely probably knows that women exist well, cl- yeah, I mean, clearly, clearly. He's struggling with that. And I mean, it's, you know, it's, yeah. much less yeah. a black woman's yeah. experience. Yeah. How well, can the- how can we expect? Sorry. How can we expect a bunch of, you know, middle aged, you know, baby boomer white dudes to really judge the um, the expression mm-hmm. of a non-white, non-male mm-hmm. context. Mm-hmm. We can. Mm-hmm. So if you don't make that, it's it's like Hollywood's ex- obsession with the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I feel mm-hmm. shaded by this. Eh, again, you know, yeah. I, look, I liked <laughs> I liked you know some of their movies like anybody yeah. else. They just it's just this obsession. Yeah. And I, I and you know it's like Hollywood's obsession with Woody Allen. I don't understand it. And people, people are like, oh, Annie, and Diane Keaton. I don't understand it. It's like, it's like certain people are minted, and I don't see why. Yeah, and, and their experience is somehow both ex- the height of creativity, but, but, also uni- yes. but, and, but also universal enough that we can't you, possibly condemn how, That's, how, that's how the rhetoric. More, how much more can we learn about white people? <laughs> like, honestly, <laughs> I really want to know how much more we've been Sometimes through. Sometimes I forget that I'm not white. I, I just get really <laughs> confused. I'm like, oh, yeah, I speak other languages, and I've, like, like been how? exposed to other cultures. Exactly. Like, why am I like, The white experience we've got yeah. down. We've got it down. Yeah. I think we're good with the white experience. We've done the Brokeback Mountain. Mm. We've done Ladybird. Ladybird. We've done Birdcage. We've done whatever. <laughs> There's a lot of I LGBTQ mean, references there, which which are which <laughs> are white. Legit. Fair enough. You but know, they're white. <laughs> at the end of the day, they too are white. Yeah, yeah. No, but fair. How absolutely. Many white absolutely. Experiences can we can we study? Yeah. Do yeah. we need to, we've seen your angst, we've seen yeah. your anger, yeah. we've seen your depression, we've seen your despondence, we've seen it. We've seen your, your joy, no, sort of, joy, we've seen your friendships, we've seen your relationships ad nauseum, right. and I'm just tired. And it's like, it's yeah. like watching the Patriots win yeah. the Super Bowl every year. It's like, really? <laughs> How many more times do we have to listen to Tom Brady? Well, and this is why I'm so excited for Crazy Rich Asians to come out this summer. Uh, Thank you. Uh, something else. Uh, Give me something. Yes. And not at the margins, not at the fringes. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, I'd hate to say it, but that's why the I'm sorry. That's why the Cosby right. show was such a such that's a breakthrough. Yes. We, yeah, and we all know and struggle with that. Yeah. True. Well, yeah. true. And I I just yeah. There's not much more we can learn about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. White people in anthology. <laughs> <laughs> Are you putting a, together a, a greatest hits collection? I feel like there's so much to choose from. <laughs> so uh, one final thing for this week in feminism. Uh, this week, the trial of Raymond Cormier was underway in Winnipeg. He is charged with second-degree murder in connection to Tina Fontaine, a murder and missing uh, Aboriginal woman's death, and has pled not guilty. 
He was arrested in December 2015, more than a year after her body was pulled from the Red River, wrapped in a duvet cover that was weighed down by 11.5 kilograms of rocks. Tina Fontaine's story is deeply tragic. Tina was undeserved, underserved, ignored, and neglected by a number of government agencies and social services, including police and child and family services, all of whom she contacted days before her death while she was still considered a missing person. This week, the court heard the audio of her 911 tape, and her voice was heard in court. Yet headlines of this widely reported case focused on a toxicology report that Tina had drugs and alcohol in her system at the time of her death. The defense is arguing that her cause of death is unknown at this time, pointing to the toxicology reports as evidence. Uh, Toxicologists also added that the amounts in her system might have registered artificially high because of the decomposition of her body and because the tests were done on chest cavity fluids instead of blood. The Assembly of Manitoba called out the Globe and Mail and other publications for the headlines as victim-blaming. Quote, It is this type of victim-blaming headline that helps shape the public discourse on the bigger issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Uh, the Assembly's Grand Chief Aaron Dumas wrote in a letter to the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Walmsley. Dumas said the headline gave the impression that Tina, quote, had it coming. She then, uh, he then goes on and says... The death of Tina Fontaine was the first time in this country that non-Indigenous people saw more than just, quote, another dead Indian. They saw a child, a child that had been horrendously murdered and discarded without a thought for what her life was like and may become. The Globe and Mail's headline serves to erase these memories from the public collective and replace them with the thought that she is just like the rest of them, another dead Indian. So this really uh, outraged me. I remember seeing the first, the Globe headline before the commentary and thinking like, ooh. And then I was like, wait, what did I know about this case? Like genuinely the reaction he's saying was exactly my thought process as I saw that come in. I was like, wait, did I misunderstand what the story was? I went back and read it and nothing in the article, nothing about the evidence as it came forward had anything, like had really pointed one way or the other. This is just the defense's theory of the case that there was some other, that we don't know the precise cause of death. But we do, but ignoring all the other evidence that she was actually with, with Cormier, with this man, up until her death, he had, you know, taken her away from her foster care, had, you know, she had tried to contact police, you know, as it said, they listened to her actual voice on a 911 call, and that, I mean, that ought to have been the headline, you know, that she had reached out, she had sought services. And in the context of the missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, you know, movement, the investigation that's ongoing by the federal government, you would think that the headlines in the media would be far more attuned to those, not just sensitivities, but an actual obligation they have to properly educate people. So just to clarify, the headline read, Tina Fontaine had drugs, alcohol in system when she was killed, as a quote from the toxicologist. Yeah, but as a, like, at, and I think the issue is that that's a pull quote. There was like a week's worth of, of evidence last week. The mm-hmm. toxicology report, one of many other things that happened in court, including hearing from her friends of 
friends of the accused, people in his life, people who had interacted with her, from the detectives who investigated her murder, from the people who found her body that was weighted down by 12 kilograms of rocks. Like, it's irrelevant that she had drugs in her body or what, like, how she was drugged right before she was killed. The point is, she was killed and we're having a trial about it. The fact, the whole 12 kilograms of rocks thing... It's pretty damning. It... (laughs) Pretty much points. Like, could you imagine wrapping yourself in a duvet cover, weighing down that duvet cover with 12 kilograms of rocks, and then, like, throwing yourself in the Red River? Yeah, I'm not sure what the theory that the... They're trying to build. That they're trying to build. And it could just be that she died unrelated to an act, and and they're trying to say, you know, maybe it's it's some other classification of murder. But regardless, he still tried to cover it up. But that's not the headline. Then the headline should read... Defense trying to push this theory. It shouldn't read, she had drugs in her body, period. And now the name that's out there is Tina Fontaine. We should really, like, which is, which is fine. We should, when we talk about the person who's murdered, we should speak in a different set of terms. The the issue is there's a man on trial while there is an, you know, epidemic of, you know, women being murdered. Well, not really. I mean, it's been decades of missing and murdered indigenous women in this country. And mm-hmm. complete inaction by all authorities. And inaction, she was, I mean, the, story, the headline is, she was missing, and she called police, and she called children and family services, and no one did shit for her. That's yeah. the headline. To me, that's the most shocking thing. Or that this guy was under their radar, and police knew about him. He was like a known person. And still, they didn't. Did they card him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this reminds me of Picton. Well, oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, yeah. What I like about these stories is that it just shows you how inadequate um, Canadian news media is mm-hmm. to in terms of covering these stories. I mean, I got the voicemail or the nine one one call story from APTN, the Aboriginal People's TV Network. That's where I got right. that article from. Right. So again, now I'm gonna like. I'm going to make a, um, I'm going to contextualize this in a different way. And it just goes to show that establishment media seems to be consistently failing the public. Mm -hmm. And it it was all over establishment media. Even the CB, I think this started with the CBC, who, um, who basically had a head, ran a headline that said Tina Fontaine had drugs and same thing. And I looked through the different, um, the different publications, mm-hmm. so the Globe, the National Post, Global, and a couple other—they all use the same. They thing. all use the same language in that headline. Mm-hmm. They didn't even bother to change the words, mm-hmm. and it just goes to show to me how inept. So we talked about the Grammys. Mm-hmm. I feel like the Canadian news media is like the Grammys, just—I mean, canceled, in, ca- inept, in part of like. In a little bit of their defense, like I think not the reporters. No, no, no. I didn't say no, no, no. no, no, no. Okay, that like you get, you get a wire story from the Canadian press, and so I think this was a Canadian press story originally. Right, but that's that's part of the issue is that the established media relies on those without. Well, they have to because they've been gutted and they have no. For sure, everyone's been laid off, but. but they yeah, all yeah. have a public responsibility. Sure. And they, sure. you know, it's like the globe is running series on mur- missing and murdered indigenous women on the one hand, and then they go and do this. It's like, you know, 
put yeah. two and two together, like you have to. It's not a good look. Yeah, it's no. definitely not a it's, good look. And especially for CBC, I think I think CBC requires more scrutiny because they are they have a mandate. Yeah, and they are publicly funded. Yes, and so they're the emphasis on them to be. CBC makes a big deal about being accessible or available in rural areas, but then doesn't care about how they actually speak when representing marginalized communities in another non-rural context. This has been actually, and I'm going to shit all over the Canadian media again, because (laughs) this has been a week of basically victim-blaming brown people. We had the Quebec mosque coverage. We had... Um, Colton Bushy is yeah, another, another yeah. it's another um, trial that's go- that just started and it looks like shit right now. Mm-hmm. It looks very us against them. It's it's divided a community. It's it's a trial of a bit to kill a mockingbird. Ooh. You know what I mean? And so I find that I find that that trial too is going to be an expose on Canada, race, the relation, how they, how we treat the indigenous. It's going to be another sort of um, watershed mm-hmm. trial because of you know because of our relationship with our indigenous people, which is shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that if any Canadian media outlet wanted to provide value and actually earn the clicks that they want then they will look at it as such and frame it as such. But who would write that? You can't just have anybody write that. And as we know, newsrooms are very white and they're very male. Mm-hmm. And so you can't, you can't, they don't have the personnel it's in- because yeah. they choose not to. It's interesting because CBC does have CBC Aboriginal, I think it's called, like as a section. Then and they I don't should know who's let them there, lead. but they should let them lead. Totally, then they 100%. should let them lead this, yeah. like that yeah. reporting um, I think um, I, I I don't want to talk out of turn, but there's there's a story in Thunder Bay. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's another yeah. Aboriginal story. If you want, I would say that to group all of these stories together and actually talk about a pattern, because we have a pattern here. And all we're saying is that there should be conscientious reporting, not that the reporting should be tilted towards one out. Like they're not reporting. I'm not saying report that he for sure killed her and that's the outcome of the trial. Like the trial is ongoing, but consider what the implication of a headline is and whether or not that's capturing the story. Don't go for the sensationalism. The media headline is taking an existing stereotype and trope and then acting as if it's fact. It's not even a fact of the trial. It's not even the most salient part of the trial. And now it's time for rent and receipts, and this is where we each bring a story or news item to share with the others and enlighten, you know, enlighten each other. Erica, what's up? So, um, as we know, I believe it was, was it Thursday? Thursday was February 1st mm-hmm. and the beginning of Black History Month. So on Tuesday, the federal government held a news conference uh, to announce it would be officially recognizing the decade for people of African descent. The UN initiative, which runs from 2015 to 2024, 
aims to recognize, promote, and protect the achievements and freedoms of people of African descent. PM Justin Trudeau said embracing it in Canada will help address, quote, the very real and unique challenges that black Canadians face, unquote. After the announcement, Trudeau, joined by black MPs, as well as members of the Federation of Black Canadians and the Federal Black Caucus, took questions from reporters. However, none seemed to be directly related to the initiative or the experiences of black people. In fact, none of the questions, not one of them, mentioned black people at all. The questions instead uh, were about the recent wave of sexual harassment allegations in Canadian politics, including whether the Me Too movement has led PM Trudeau to reflect on his own past behavior. Um, so an anti-racism, an anti-racism activist who works with the Canadian Labour Congress uh, basically said that there was initially an aura of hope in the room of people watching Trudeau's remarks. But afterwards, the room really sank into a whole different mood when we realized that essentially the press conference was hijacked by journalists on the Hill. So, you know, here's where my inner Kanye comes out. <laughs> and I think about, like, Katrina when he said George Bush doesn't care about black people. Mm. And I replaced George Bush with the Canadian media. I'm just not impressed with the media right now. So even in our own hour, we can't even, like, the erasure continues. And you see this throughout the media. You see this when CBC was talking about anti-black racism and thought that Conrad Black was the, the scion <coughs> of racial relations. You see it in all-white panels on CBC. You see it basically everywhere. And that racialized, especially black people, are just, nobody, is, are just invisible. That's my piece. Fair. <laughs> Disgust. Fair. Uh, I mean, I think the... On Black History, in Black yeah, History Month. And the statement itself was also really lackluster. I mean, it's not like anything substantive was proposed. There was no, this is what we're going to do to honor the decade, We're not, or even the month, or these are some new initiatives, or this is how our government is going to do things differently. Um, also, they're a little late to the game. This started in 2015. That's yeah, a this peculiar. is weird. Weird. It, it's such a hollow gesture that I'm like not. I I get that the media should. Those are the questions media should have asked. What are you doing to actually ad like address, celebrate, commemorate, da da da, honor this decade? But none of that came forward. But to their credit, also nothing was <laughs> of substance was also raised. I, in the I wonder if there is like this sentiment among the white media that they it's not their place to ask these questions because they're not black, and so they're like. So then, been why like, were they they're there? They're like they're like just so because who else are you gonna send? Then hire no one. That is my. That is exactly the point. Well, yes, absolutely. So like maybe they're just like too scared to be like. 
Well, I can't write about the black experience because I'm not black. I don't know. They feel comfortable writing about the black experience when it serves other purposes or they're writing to stereotypes. Oh, sure. Yeah, then they're all about the black experience. Yep. Then they want to tell black people <laughs> our own experience. Yeah. So I don't think it's that they're afraid. I think that if it does not, if it does not fit their narrative... Just like the Tina Fontaine, well, they have a narrative with black people that they love to, um, that they love to support with certain which whichever stories they choose to cover. Well, yeah, and I think that you know the whole Me Too um, sexual assault and harassment allegations hitting Canada was like a big story, and a lot of the time these reporters go to these events and they. They are working on things, and they just want to feed but what they're working. But this does not happen. And you know what? Fucking send an email to the comms director. You know what? Fucking well, reach I, out to the chief yeah. of staff and ask your question I there. I get that they don't get a lot of access to Trudeau. Although, mind you, he ju- did just do a bunch of town halls. And, I mean, he's, he's not entirely invisible. He's not Stephen Harper. But, fine, you get a... Like, maybe the onus is on their office for scheduling a press conference in the wake of the Me Too thing, knowing what was going to happen. They could have waited a couple days and done a proper Welcome to Black History Month. Here's what we're doing on the decade for people of African origin or whatever to meaningfully address it. Like the, the whole conceit of the press conference and the timing was just so poorly thought out and it it was very checklist like we have to do this we want to keep up appearances and the thing that really pisses me off is the use of the like black mps almost as props and not giving them anything meaningful to do and i don't know if anyone read that mclean story a few weeks back about the immigration crisis in canada refugee crisis with haitian immigrants but essentially what the federal government or trudeau government has been doing is sending haitian um, MPs of Haitian or African origin, uh, MPs with Span- uh, Spanish backgrounds or Hispanic backgrounds, to Florida to dissuade immigrants from coming to Canada and speaking to them in n- what their native language or speaking to them from uh, from uh, the same place right. to say, don't come to Canada. What you've heard about whether or not you'll be accepted here is a myth, and don't come because you won't be accepted as refugee because Canada has a policy of a safe third country. Yeah. So if someone comes from Haiti and lands in America and then comes to make a claim in Canada, which is a, a significant trend we're seeing now, they're actually denied because they landed in a safe third country, America, which they now want to leave because it's unsafe mm-hmm. and we need to reconceptualize. I mean, the whole thing is a racist regime, but whatever. Leave that aside. That's when they pull out the racialized MPs to send them to go give these shitty pronouncements to poor refugees who are seeking some assistance or to stand in the backdrop of the, of the prime minister and not giving them any meaningful policy work or leadership positions or roles to take up. Well, it's exactly the same way he treats his women in cabinet, just throws them under the bus. Yeah. Doesn't give Marianne them any, Monsef, doesn't give them any necessarily meaningful work. Yeah. I mean, it turns out he never wanted to do proportional representation all along. So I don't know why minister months have had to travel the entire country to consult with Canadians so he could just reject the proposal. So, um, actually, I got stuck on a bus this week. And, you know, uh, therefore, I tweeted. (laughs) So, um, I tweeted uh, a sort of a Twitter essay on this. And it basically had to do... It basically talked about Canadian blacks. And how... So, this is picking up from your props comment. Um, 
and I basically said Canadian blacks have no power. The quote-unquote good minority blacks have no power. Educated blacks have no power. And the organizations that represent us are more concerned with being well-behaved than making change or noise. So, (laughs) okay, maybe I should skip that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Respectable Canadian blacks are our own worst enemy. (laughs) They kowtow to Massa, hoping for crumbs from Massa's table. They thought because Trudeau came out and said the bare minimum they'd achieve something. Guess not. Look at the black people who are invited to speak at events where they can sniff the corridor of power. Quiet, respectable, won't make waves or say something like Black Lives Matter. But it seems like they learned this at the press conference that they don't matter either. So I go on from that. But the point is, is that I find what I find with certain black organizations that have, I don't know if they have, First of all, they're not used to having the ear of like the prime minister or whatever. But even if they do, um, what tends to happen is that I'm sorry, but they use themselves as props too. And to be seen with this, with the prime minister, with this big announcement. And I'm like, hmm, look at that. You don't matter either. I mean, it, it's tough. I, I don't know tactically for people who buy into partisan politics and elected office, how much they, there is room to be a disruptive force. And some people do it better than others, find a way to find that balance. But I don't, I think it's that, I think what I am saying is that we, we seem to get the bare minimum for, and we seem to, I'm sorry, sometimes pimp ourselves out. Mm. And I didn't like how I and I I saw the I I looked at the um, the announcement mm-hmm. and I didn't like how you had um, some of the most notable black people essentially silent and smiling and being used as props. You're right. I mean, I, there's even talk about the minister of immigration mm-hmm. how he doesn't do anything. If you look at the case of, I think it's Abdi, um, I can't remember his name now. Yes, the, the one in Nova Scotia. Yes, the young one. Caught no- up in foster yeah. care system. Exactly. Didn't have um, being deported. I want to say Ibra. Anyway, um, when asked about that, the Minister of Immigration cited, oh, privacy, we can't talk about that, and has done nothing. Mm-hmm. So... I do think, so this goes back to what Aaron was saying, which is Trudeau uses women and people of color as props to make him look a certain way to build his brand. And not only to build his brand, I think he builds his brand on the backs of women and people of color. And I feel like what has happened is that those like marginalized groups that he builds his brand on have been willing participants to be the prop, and that bothers me. Mm, yeah. They're complicit in it. They are complicit in their own window dressing and their own tokenism, and that bothers me. I think that's what I'm getting to. Yeah. But that, I mean, And that's a historic thing. That, yeah, it's very it's historic. true in immigration communities. You want to be seen as the good immigrant and, not, yeah. and then not raising hell about these other uh, folks and, and trying to preserve your status, your hard-earned status in 
in the respected class by advocating for people who have otherwise been in the margins. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, I'll go next. Uh, one thing I don't think we as in like society talks about enough um, because it's not salacious, it's not sexy, and most people don't take the time to really get into the, the subject matter is the persistent attacks uh, by the Trump administration on poor people. So from allowing states to introduce work requirements for Medicaid to work requirements for food stamps, um, it's just getting out of control. So this time it's public housing. Um, a draft budget item was leaked and the administration may introduce minimum work requirements for some recipients of housing aid and while, while at the same time raising rents for others thus bringing in a new conservative ethos to federal assistance. Except when you make it more expensive to people to live, that's not fucking assistance. But sure, sure. Um, Will Fisher, a senior policy analyst for the Center on Budget and Pri Policy Priorities, says, quote, it's framed as a rent reform proposal, but this isn't really about reform when you look at the specific proposals. It isn't clear that there's any policy rationale behind this, if you work, they raise your rent. If you don't work, they raise your rent. If you're elderly, they raise your rent. So basically, the changes would allow public housing agencies to introduce minimum employment requirements for eligible families, uh, but in order to qualify for public housing or maintain their residence, beneficiaries may be asked to demonstrate proof of employment. Uh, such requirements can pose substantial burdens on low-income households with some adults may needing to care for children or disabled relatives, other adults simply just not being able to find jobs, with others still, uh, you know, and losing their houses won't make this search for a new job easier because you don't have a stable place to look, you don't have a stable place for people to send information. Um, plus, minimum work requ requirements may also be hard to meet even for those with jobs because of shift work. So if you work retail, if you work at a coffee shop, you just might not get the required minimum hours to qualify for these programs. It's so fucked up, and I'm so tired of conservatives who have, quote-unquote, family values introducing policies and changing policies that don't live up to those standards. Like, you want to have a work requirement for food stamps? Uh, I think it's more important that people just get fed so they don't die. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's kind of a thing you know healthcare important uh daycare important to support the familial structure to lift people out of poverty but no instead we've got we're gonna let the free market take care of everyone or or charities and churches which is what these people often will answer yeah. to that that you know these folks can be fed uh through food banks shelters the church like go attending at a church or receiving um charity yeah which I mean, we, it's just never going to be as effective. It's very volatile. And it, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I just want to shake these people and say, like, it's the Christian thing to do. <laughs> just, like, on your own terms, as you're saying, like, family values, like, the, religi like the religious right is, is the, like, the hypocrisy is just, like, rampant it's astounding. in these policies. And it's, like, on speaking on your own terms, you are not anywhere near where you need to be, yeah. like, living those values. Yeah. And to what end? To save how much in public funds? Well, the thing is they have to do this. They have to raise these program the 
the cost of these programs because they just gave a $1.5 trillion tax cut to the wealthy. So they're punishing poor people for being poor because they gave this tax cut and they have to pay for it somehow. It's the Republican playbook. This is this is nothing new with them. I I just I I really wonder why people continue to vote for them. If you're not a billionaire or whatever, I I just I feel like you know, this is just so typical of them. I'm kind of like bored. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? <laughs> it's awful. It's awful, but they've been doing this for decades. Cutting the um cutting the um the the programs of poor people to be able to fund a tax cut to be able to fund a war to be able to mm. fund you know what i mean like every government spends it just depends on what they spend on yeah it's all about priorities and, right and the so, unfortunate thing is yeah the republican narrative is of and people want to see themselves as middle class even the poor don't consider themselves poor so in political well, you know, psychology if, that's a very common thing that i understand yeah. that but you know I feel like at some point, totally. you know, there comes a time when one must look at circumstances and, you know, put one's ego away and eat. Yeah. So I no, no, I, yeah, I completely agree. Like, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, too. Like, why do people vote against their own interests? And it happens all the time. And yeah. Republicans have just been really effective, or the right has in their general. messaging is uh, with so that, good. With that messaging, pitting um, you know, it, pitting people against each other. This is the thing that really frustrates me about the Trump era because people make it sound like Trump was the person who invented this, and yeah. he's not. Republicans have been talking about latte sip- sipping liberals and East Coast intellectuals and the two Americas since time immemorial, but yeah. it, it, Trump has just been a lot more naked about how he talks about it. He doesn't, he doesn't use the euphemisms that Republicans have tactfully been using or speaking in he the right, dance saying those the things way. in the right spaces, but not broadcasting them nationally. Yeah. Um, whereas he has like he doesn't even use dog whistle. He's just like, "This is what it is. We're gonna, you know, yeah. we're gonna take America back." And it's so, but but this approach absolutely is classic, and it's it's classic Republican. And yeah, it, it is interesting um, that the left hasn't quite captured that same demographic by saying you know we're working with you we're working for, like you know for you and empowering people um without without saying with you know and frankly i think the charity language is far more disparaging than mm. the so-called public handout language that republicans I, deride against yeah and i think that if it was just based on the public handouts you could convince more people but now that the the fear of brown and black and other skinned colored skinned people is like Mm. in the brains of a lot of conservative republicans um it's going to be hard to change that because they're scared like how do you convince someone that um you know more progressive policies are beneficial to them when they're still inherently scared that you're going to be advocating for an immigrant legal or not over them I mean, they, that that messaging has been really effective. Yeah. About dividing class, and it's all it's a hierarchy. Poor whites stand atop poor, hardworking immigrants, legal mm-hmm. or otherwise, and poor well, blacks. Poor, That's this, how they see themselves. But this is like this is this this is the Republican Party since the 1960s. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I agree. so, like, 
what the Republicans give poor white people is value in just being white. Mm -hmm. You're born white. You have a certain level of value above your black neighbor, above your Hispanic neighbor or Latino. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what the, but, um, but they, they, they pledge not in direct ways to uphold whiteness. And that's what, Kentucky because if you're if you're like born in Kentucky or in the Appalachians mm -hmm. like what really do you have you have no teeth but you have your white skin <laughs> just saying so that you can feel oh, better way. about why do you think yeah. average average looking pudgy white guys think that they're somebody <laughs> give me a break uh, Amy, right. <laughs> your turn. So, um, what do you have for your first rent to receive? Oh my, so much pressure. Um, okay, so mine is um, an article that was uh, in on Shondaland.com because they have great. They do great. They really do. on there. Yeah. So um, this is an essay uh, by a librarian who's writing about how femme librarians work at the forefront. Um, or the front lines of workplace sexual harassment every single day in their in their line of work, and she's writing about her uh, firsthand experience working at the re at reference desk and working with um, folks who visit the library and having to greet them, to be pleasant, to again do this kind of service industry work that is largely uh, pink collar, largely a largely work done by women and fem and femmes. Uh, femme identifying individuals and she has uh, you know a couple um, anecdotes you know the patron who comes and sits at the library all day gawking at her um, the you know individual who comes up to the reference desk and tells her um, you know she looks like this and that celebrity asks her later to print off a picture of that celebrity in color leaves the library winks at her and says you know thank you I'll be uh, looking at this later like just really gross. yeah like really gross stuff and I mean it's just it's an interest. I like that it's an account um, that speaks to a, an industry that we don't really think about, um, or a workplace setting that we don't always think about, and the kind of work that um, maybe we don't see. The um, librarian. It, well, like we don't think about what their day to day is like, and the exposure to sexual harassment that folks in service industry work in general feel, not just from um, their employers, but also from patrons, clients and what, what it would mean to actually protect those, in, or women in general, in their day-to-day -day interactions. Because I think it's been really easy for people to identify the line of when conduct is n inappropriate because the person is a superior. And that's, that's easy on its face to say, this is a boss and a boss should not conduct themselves that way vis-a-vis -vis an employee. But it's a lot harder to say, how do you intervene? How do you navigate these things? When uh, the role of a librarian or a hostess at a restaurant is to placate to accommodate, to be, to to comfort these people who come through the door, and to um, you know exhibit the feminine, um, all the feminine trappings that we associate with good service, um, in such a way uh, that they're not you know, they're not going to call, they're not empowered to call out that behavior, and certainly I don't think the managers at, at restaurants will will back necessarily back the hostess before they back the customer. Um. There's a lot to unpack there. I know, that's why I picked <laughs> it. Um, I think, uh, first of all, I didn't know librarians were service workers. They're frontline service workers. I, I, mean, I, yeah. I think they have, I mean, 
like you can study library science, for right? Sure. For sure. So I'm not sure, and it depends on what kind of. I think of them more as researchers. But it depends on what. So if you're working a reference desk and your job is just to like greet people, I can and understand if you're that. like a yeah. checkout yeah. librarian, yeah. but. Um, they wear different hats, for sure. You're still serving people. I, yeah, but you're not a service worker. Right. It's not service industry, but you are doing a frontline service. So I, I guess the language wasn't precise. But, but No, no. It's, yeah. not, it's, not, it's less the language and more um, what we're trying to express. And I think that, like, I, I don't, I guess I don't think, or maybe I'm just old. I don't know. But, like, I think of librarians no as, that's fine. <laughs> I think of librarians as like I don't know as as reference queens. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, good for you. That's you, great. I think know, they'd love I, to be known as reference queens, but I unfortunately, like, <laughs> people come into the library to ogle them apparently. And yeah. like that's really shitty. But there's also there's also a long history of the sexualization of sure. the library. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, I think and that that yeah that in itself mm -hmm. is what is also sort of um, sort of, of fueling this. Mm -hmm. Oh, look, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, especially with the consumption of porn these days, mm. you know, one would think that most dudes who go into the library have seen some type of librarian porn and are try are associating it with but it but then again that just emphasizes the idea of women as props, of sexual props for men, um, and just everyday women being those sexual exactly. props. It's not, it's not as though it's like you're watching a movie. Like, why can't men contextualize? That's mm -hmm. my question. Yeah. Why? No, it's... Why? Why is it it's that the every sense woman of entitlement that they walk can walk into the library and do this without with you know with impunity, um, or you know I'm, like I have a feeling this happens in many female like so another sort of service but not really a service industry where you're dealing with members of the public would be like nursing that's a largely femme area of work or mostly women who are do that work mm -hmm. and I'm sure that they are exposed to a lot of sexual harassment um, because of our associations with what nurses. Um, mm. are like, but also because they're just women doing this predominantly um, caring line of work. They have to be attentive. They have to, but there's we a think level of, of politeness that's But we required. think of women's work as work in servitude anyway. Yeah, which is yeah. so fucked up. So yeah. that's... And men feel entitled to it. And Yeah, and servitude means means a power imbalance. For sure. That's what it's, right. it's just, it, it assumes a power imbalance. So I think, too, that that's part of the problem. Is that well? Besides men being like trash, but mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, um, I think that the way we have um, sort of contextualized certain work and the sexual component that we've added to librarians—I don't know what it is. I—I I don't even know where that came from, to be honest. I'm like, really. I think it's important, too, to keep in mind that employers are reconceptualizing sexual harassment and policies also gear them towards clients and not just uh, staff and uh, staff and, and superiors, but also this, this public interaction. And how are we going to protect our workers from that exposure when they're at work, which is, is very a real health and safety concern. Yeah, and it's probably more prevalent and more noticeable in industry, like 
the hospitality industry. Yeah, totally. Because you've got uh, clientele who are drinking, um, depending on whether it's a restaurant or a club, there could be drugs. And that is a situation where it is ripe for assault and harassment. I think to it's take more place. than that. I think it has to do with that service mentality. Oh, absolutely. And I think m- a lot of it is that men who pay think that they're entitled to something. And men who pay for bottle service think that they're entitled to more than just the bottle. Mm-hmm. That the service part yeah. includes um, a, Touching wo- and a like woman being subservient them. to yeah. them. Yeah. And I, like, I, I think that's why the service industry is especially rife with that kind of behavior from patrons. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. even talking about within the industry. Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about from patrons. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, what, if you think, if you're going to spend $200 on a bottle, men think that they're entitled to the, you know, the person who brings the bottle to. Yep. Because they paid. Yep. Like, no. <laughs> So now we're moving on to our last segment, Massages of the Week. Um, I think this might be our first female misogynist of the week. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Which, I mean, misogynists come in all genders. Totally. So the misogynist of the week is White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who, following the State of the Union, appeared on CNN to discuss the speech and she said that she thinks Nancy Pelosi the minority house leader needs to smile more often and that the country would be better for it Ew. okay also anytime I picture Nancy Pelosi I only picture her smiling and surrounded by like 70 grandchildren but definitely smiling yes <laughs> um she then continued and said this she seems to kind of embody the bitterness that belongs in the democrat party right now bitch shut the fuck up bitter and proud i said erica's is like i don't know where to go i i There's so I, many ways to take this. i i can now talk about her fucking face okay this is awesome because i feel like i feel I, like she opened the door to this i will say um, I did a quick Google search, Google images, and I was like, Nancy Pelosi. And then I screen capped that. Sarah Huckabee Sanders screen capped it. Fucking Sarah Huckabee Sanders was the one with the more like frowny, like disgusted yeah, faces scowls than all Nancy Pelosi. Thing, yeah. Like there weren't many of Nancy Pelosi though, because there was also like a lot of like caricatures and like uh, memes made of her, which yeah. is rude. Rude. Um, but yeah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was the one that had more of the non-smiling ones. Sarah Huckabee Sanders looks and sounds like a horse's ass. And that's just, at the end of the day, this is one of the ugliest women I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I feel like... I'm not here for this, but I feel like... I, I say she's ugly both inside and out. Because you're right, she scowls all the time. She's bitter she's angry, she's, you know, she's, she, and she lies. And I feel like that ugliness inside just comes out on her face. 
look, I'm I don't I don't care if people scowl. You should scowl. We should all be angry. It's a shitty time. The world is trash. But to call someone out for not smiling enough and to use that language, which we all know is like classic misogynist line that women should be smiling more and please like and she's saying it in relation to their policies, in relation to America would feel better. America would feel better if women at the helm of the Democratic Party nursed their feelings and cradled them to bed at night with, you know, whispering nothing but pleasant fairy tales. You Is that what, what you want? You know what would make America feel better? If Donald Trump wasn't the goddamn president. Mm-hmm. So what does Nancy Pelosi have to smile about in the first place? I She's surrounded by those fucking Republican idiots every day. Also, I mean, I didn't hear her say Bernie Sanders, who scowled through the entire State of the Union, and rightfully so, should smile more. This was a gendered attack. I think for she's sure. trolling. Uh-huh. I just oh. think she's trolling. Yeah, that's probably true. I don't think that she's gunning for I, that next SNL no, skit. I, I think that I, I honestly think that she represents that administration so well. Like she's doing. If if somebody asked me. Oh, well, do you think Sarah Huckabee Sanders does a good job? No, well, depends on what side you're looking at yeah, it from. Yeah. If you look at them from the vis-a-vis the Trump administration, yeah, she's doing a great job. Leaps Be- and bounds ahead of Sean Spicer. She is because because that same attitude, that same the way she um deflects, the mm-hmm. way she lies, all of that is very Trump- Trumponian. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she represents them well in that mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. So I feel like she's trolling yeah. the, what she calls the, e- well, what they call the evil left or the, the mainstream media because she knows it'll get us riled up. Yeah. It's not I mean, like she, she doesn't the know. street media? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I feel like, like she's, yeah. she is. And the other thing, too, is that one thing about this administration is that they have a tendency to come out with these cultural no-nos mm. in the middle. To di- I feel like they're just distracting you from something else. I've said this before, but, you know, I, I think that a lot of the media, a lot of my timeline on Twitter gets taken up by these cultural, um, di- like, verbal diarrhea. And meanwhile, we're not talking about Iran. We're not talking about mm. Afghanistan. We're not talking about certain things that are going on in the yeah, world. The fact that they're sending more troops. Exactly. We're not talking about that. We're talking. Well, I think about her press conferences, for sure. Like when she does the White House briefings, it's intentionally. It, you're right. She's intentionally using these detraction tactics. She yeah. lies with a much better straight face than Sean Spicer did. She seems to really buy what she's saying, and that's, in a sense, for them effective. And then she's always putting, you know, dropping these distractions. Yeah, and, and so does he. And dodging, and so does he. And so and does he. The whole yeah. taking me, calling Kaepernick NFL thing. Calling was, out Jay-Z. Y- yeah, like <laughs> all of that, all of that is... It's deliberate. I can't remember what was going... Because things happen so fast. But there's usually some sort of policy that either he is fucking up or is not going his way. And he uses these sort of cultural moments, these sociocultural moments, because he knows how distracted the country is and mm. how responsive the country is to that. Yeah. I didn't say he was an idiot. What I'm saying is he can't run shit. That's obvious. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, he doesn't know how to govern with shit. And he's too egocentric and egotistical to choose people who know how to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he's a marketing and media genius, mm-hmm. to be honest. I mean, if he weren't, we wouldn't be talking about him right now. He wouldn't, he would have lost. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in bringing up Sarah Huckabee Sanders, it's important to remember that not liking a woman and thinking and disagreeing with her doesn't mean that you can't still be a feminist and that women also can't be misogynist mm-hmm. and uphold patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad you're calling out internal, like internalized misogyny or active, and in, in some cases, active misogyny as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that because, like, a if lot you of look at like Christy Blatchford, is a good example of yes. that, right? Yeah. There's a like, lot of internalized misogyny. There. Yeah. And like Sarah Huckabee Sanders, fucking Tommy Lauren, they're always saying, well, hmm. you're picking on women, so how can you be a feminist on the left? Well, that's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. But this is the thing, like, I think one of the problems is that people have a hard time to to, to really defining what feminism is and what the requirements are. And I know people don't want to police other people's feminism. And I'm like, see, that's how Taylor Swift takes that shit and uses it as a brand. This idea that all you need to believe is for the equality of men and women is just such, Mm. it's just such bullshit because it's not even nuanced. Feminism's a lot more than it's a lot more than that. I hear these women. I hear these old ashy, you know, like hardback, like second wave feminists talk about how it just sounds so bad that a woman's life just sounds so bad. Why should we give that impression to our daughters? And I'm like, you must be rich and white, okay? (laughs) Because only you would say something like that. We have learned that there are other people besides the Betty Friedans of the world. We understand that feminism can be applied to those different areas or those different people. I think that especially second wave baby boomer and Gen X feminists have problems with understanding the intersections of class and race, class and gender, gender, whatever intersections there are. And the third wave, true feminists, when I say true feminists, I don't mean Becky's, I mean true feminists, <laughs> really understand, really have, have taken feminism and evolved, like, have, they've evolved into a more broader, nuanced, and at the same time specific view of feminism that these old, ashy broads don't understand. That's what I hear. There's a generational there's a generational battle and there's also a political battle for feminism right now. So there's that. Yeah. Great. Well, (laughs) I think that about does it. Anything else you guys would like to add? Um, I just like to say what a fun first day on the pod. This has been great. Yay. Um, And as always, we'd like to thank media style for letting us use their space. Media style is a progressive public affairs agency they are a social enterprise making Canada a better place. Uh, Thank you, Media Style. And if you want to hear more of our ramblings, find us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook at Bad and B Podcast, and send us emails, hate mail, whatever <laughs> mail, to our email account, badandbpod at gmail.com. 
maybe we'll read them on the air. You know. Maybe. We'll maybe see. we'll do a video. That's what I mean. We'll do a video. <laughs> yeah. Cool. But then we'll also put you on blast, so. We'll Choose probably what. laugh at you, actually. <laughs> we probably will. Anyways, rate us on iTunes. That's it. Yeah. Cool. Bye. 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 Bye.